Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everyone, welcome to the Survival Show podcast. I'm David, the founder of Ultimate Survival Tips and your host for today's show. Well, we are at SHOT Show and I have a special guest host today. Dan Eastland from Dogwood Custom Knives. Dan also has a podcast we're going to talk about in a little bit. And we have an interesting story about how we met and what we did after an adventure that we had together. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I got to admit, it's a little weird hearing somebody else do an intro. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a podcast, right? Yeah, I do. No? Uh, we're on episode 65. Ooh, man, you're smoking. That's a lot. That's a lot. Okay. To get that far, actually. I think most podcasts fail within like the first 15 episodes. I'm lucky. I've got a really great co-host, um, Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives. Okay, nice. And we were hitting a once a month um, cadence for a little while. And now that our feet are under us, we're hitting a, a twice a month cadence. Okay, cool. Um, and it is, it's pretty, it's a little bit niche. It's a, a knife maker specific podcast. Mm-hmm. And the general idea is Kyle and I had some metallurgy questions. And he worked in a lab for Navistar where there was a metallurgist. Okay. So we were asking the guy a couple of questions. And then we realized, other people might want to know this. So every episode is some expert in the knife field. Um, nice. Laren Thomas came on and talked about metallurgy. Ethan Becker came on um, to talk about design. Ethan, I haven't seen him in a long time. He's a phenomenal. I love that guy. He is. A, yeah, he's the, he's the uncle everybody wishes they Are they had. here? Is he here? He is. Oh, okay. He's at the K-Bar booth. Okay. Um, when we get a chance, I'll take you by. Okay, nice. Um... But, I mean, we've had things as varied as we had a lawyer come on and talk about um, liability protection and uh, intellectual property. Uh, That's a huge thing, yeah. We've had dealers come on and talk about pricing and how to come to the attention of dealers. Oh, nice. I mean, the goal is to hit every aspect of knife making. And then whenever we get questions, if Kyle and I don't know the answer, we find an expert, bring them on the show, and interview them. That's great. That's great. So let's just step step back a little bit. Tell us a little bit more. Tell us a little bit more, or a little bit, about uh, who you are, where you came from. I just want to tell you, Dogwood Custom Knives, you need to check out Dan's stuff. It's, I, I just, it's elegant. He uses very interesting steels. Um, the, the quality is amazing. And I, I guess if I had to categorize his knives, they're like elven knives. They're like <laughs> lightweight, but some of the finest steels and craftsmanship I've ever seen. So why don't you take us from like, you know, kind of like where you began, how you got into knife making, 
Um, and then we'll talk about maybe a little bit how you got into like adventure bushcrafting, <laughs> which is actually where Dan and I met. In a, we and, are jungle brothers. Yeah, we are jungle brothers. So go ahead and uh, step us through a little bit of your story, whatever you want to share. Yeah, so I guess the, the truth but short version is I was an engineering, well, I'd gone into the Army, gotten out, went to college. Um, I had just come off of a deployment and probably should not have gone to college. Okay. I wasn't ready for it. I went anyway, played a lot of rugby, drank a little bit of beer, and did very poorly in every other aspect of college. Um, so I'd moved back to Atlanta, work in construction, um, got married to my wife, Beth. I had gone back to school when our first son was born, and he was preemie and okay. was going to need constant care for at least a year. Um, I was a student. Uh, Beth had a really nice corporate job, but she was traveling a lot. So the, the only way it was going to work is I dropped out of school and became a stay-at-home dad. Okay. Um, but had spent my life working with my hands and mm-hmm. was just going nuts. So Beth and a friend of mine kind of conspired and got me into, first it was woodworking, because that was something I could do while the kids were napping. One of those things night. like, dude, you really need a hobby. Try this one. Pretty much. Um, You're driving me crazy. <laughs> yeah. I, I was, I'm a fairly creative person. It had always worked with my hands. Yeah. Um, and during this period, we had been going out to eat a lot when we were single. Now that we had kids, that wasn't happening. So I reached in the cabinet and pulled down a copy of The Joy of Cooking and started... Oh, I forgot this part yeah. of your story, the whole cooking part. Okay, it's coming back to me now. Good. Um, yeah, go I like with to, it. Go with it. I like to say I started at page one, but really it's about page 35 and just worked my way through the joy of cooking. That's how I learned to cook. Okay. Fast forward a few more years, and I was working on a project with a local blacksmith, and we're two healthy, red-blooded males. We're in a blacksmith shop. Of course, we start talking about sharp, pointy, deadly things. Right. And one Saturday, he just said, look, Dan... I'm going to be around the shop puttering. Just come by. I'll, I'll show you how to make a knife, and then we can be done with this. And it was a full-on choir of angels singing, ray of sunshine on the anvil, James Earl Jones whispering in my ear, this is why you were born. <laughs> um, and was wholeheartedly fully committed. I knew that I I was a knife maker, and I just hadn't been one yet. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that blacksmith had moved uh, his shop about 40 miles away. I had two kids in elementary school. So the travel time just didn't work. So I got a copy of the mailing list for the Georgia Custom Knife Makers Guild, who I want to take a minute and plug. They are a phenomenal organization. Mm. Georgia has a huge population of successful knife makers, and it's if not entirely, certainly majority because of that, that guild. It's a teaching guild. There's no rankings. Anybody can join. To be a voting member, you've just got to get juried on three knives and show competency. And their whole concept is a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, oh, that's great. They move their meetings around to different shops so that you can learn different techniques. You oh, learn wow. different things, how people set up their shops. They do four or five demonstrations, and it is a chance 
in my case, is a young guy that didn't even know what I didn't know. To have you know ABS masters and guys that've been doing stock removal for twenty years, and they would sit down with you and walk you through. They'd critique your knives. Some of the retired guys would come to your shop and help you set up your grinder. Mm. I mean, it's a phenomenal organization. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, but I got their mailing list, and I just started working people. And I didn't appreciate it until I had been a, a, a full-time maker for seven or eight years. But how much of a pain in the – can I say ass on this podcast? You can say ass. Okay. Yeah. How much of a pain in the ass um, – <laughs> apprentices new people in the shop i mean it is it's a bit of a burden and i was walking around asking these guys no background and finally through a combination so you're saying you were the pain in the oh i was absolutely and through a combination of kind of a friend of a friend and my absolute tenacity um andy roy of fiddleback forge finally got so frustrated he just said fine you can come the shop you're gonna work three days a week we call that persistence. Um, <laughs> you're going to hand sand Micarta in warehouse conditionings with no air conditioning in August in Georgia, and I'm not going to pay you. And I said, great. And after about three months of that, he sat me down and said, okay, if you're not going to leave, I guess I got to teach you how to make knives. You're still going to do all the grunt work, plus you're going to do other work for me. And when that's done, you can work on your own stuff. And I need 40 hours a week, and I'm still not going to pay you. Wow. And I said, okay. Uh, I was You trading. had like a unique life situation where you were able to apprentice, and you didn't need the income right then. I did. Um, my wife, um, she's brilliant. Uh, Artie had been in the corporate world and climbed the ladder really quickly. And at one point, she sat down and said, we did the numbers, and she said, this is how much full-time childcare for two kids is going to cost us. As long as what you, as long as you maintain care, taking care of the kids, as long as what you do costs this or less, as a family, we're ahead. So you know, the, this, is, this is your fun. You can go to school. You can be an apprentice. You can do whatever you want. Just keep it under this number. And that's how I was able oh, to wow. first afford to be a, an apprentice and then later – that's how I, I started outfitting my shop. Dude, was, you have a great wife. I do. I Wow. Um, I don't know what horrible, horrible thing she did in a past life to deserve me, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm kind of glad she did. <laughs> how nice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, nine months unpaid atten- apprenticeship with Andy Roy, and I went out on my own. Um, I had, as I said, been cooking. It was a passion of mine. Several of my friends were chefs in the Atlanta food scene. They were coming up. Sue's starting to be executive chefs. And as I started to get educated in knives, I realized the kitchen industry was completely underserved. You either had $20 knives, which were a $20 knife, overpriced Western knives that were based on technology that was 200 years out of date, Hmm. or... $3,000 high-end custom knives. There was no... Technology hadn't gotten caught up, and there was no real option for line cooks, sous chefs, dedicated home cooks. Right, right. I mean, at the time, they were still using 440C as the dominant steel. At the same time, bushcrafters are using S35VN and 3V, and 
so I made it kind of my passion to to modernize the the culinary world. Hmm. And I was really fortunate in that I had a couple of chefs as buddies. So I made the first what I thought was a kitchen knife. And I gave it to my buddy Musman that was with the fifth group in Atlanta. And they passed it around the kitchen for maybe a month and it came back to me with Sharpie all over it. Too much here, round this off, this is thick, this is stupid, I don't know why you did it. I mean, side note, chefs are blatantly honest. Um, (laughs) But it was a a two and a half year process to basically relearn how to design knives. Okay. Metallurgy is the same. Angle of interaction was the same. Geometry, conceptually, was the same. Uh, grips are different. Techniques are different. Um, you know, you've, you've got rock chop, you've got push cut, you've got tip work. Um, so it really was a, a close to a three-year education on completely learning, relearning how to redesign knives or oh. how to design knives. Um, and from there, I think I'm now 15 years full time. Um, I still make outdoor knives. Th- those are the guys that got me started. I'll always make outdoor knives. Uh, but about 80% of my business is kitchen knives now. Okay. And I've moved from full customs to mid-techs, and we're now working on a production line. Okay. Um, Good for you, man. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we met in uh, 2016. Um, yeah. I, I used to po- uh, co-host the uh, Equip to Endure podcast with um, oh. Adam and Robbie. Right, okay. And I forgot about this too. Right. And we were interviewing Joe for that, and he was talking about the trip. And I'm like, yeah, I, I want to do this. I want to do this. And at the end of the show, you know, we've wrapped. this was his first, this was the first trip. So this. you're talking about Joe Flowers. Yep. Who, he's either going to be on a podcast before this. He's been on the podcast before. But. Uh, he started an uh, organization called Bushcraft Global. Yep. yep. So go ahead, take it from there. Uh, down in Columbia. But we were interviewing him. He was putting together his first trip. And we had wrapped up. And, you know, and he's not shy about pitching Bushcraft Global no, at all. <laughs> no, and that, that was the whole purpose of yeah. the, the podcast. We were interviewing him okay, about nice. this new concept. Um, and we'd stop recording. And, you know, you hang out for a little while. Right. And I asked Joe, where do I send the check? He said, what do you mean? I said, deposit. Where do I send it? He said, I, I thought you were just doing a bit. I'm like, no. I want to be a part of this. Man, I've wanted to go to the jungle ever since I saw that Predator movie. Okay. <laughs> um, fast forward a few months later. Um, did the first trip with um, Andy Tran, uh, Joshua Swanwa. God, I never can pronounce his name correctly. Schwanigan. A um, couple other guys. Um, and I fell in love with the, the Colombian jungle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on the Amazon. It's in the Amazon River Basin, right there where Colombia and well, you know, Colombia, Peru, and Brazil meet. Um, and I think I had been home maybe a month before I sent him the deposit on the next trip where you and I got to meet. Yeah. So I was on the second trip. Okay. Yep. I'm pretty sure it was the second I trip. Th- I think you're right. Yeah. Um, and that. Yeah. So we met there. Yeah. Uh, uh, much adventures were had. Yeah. So if you want to if you want to see Dan, we I actually did that six part series. Oh, that's right. Right, you blew out your hammock. Yes. Yeah. Oh, was man. it your hammock? Yeah, it was your yeah. hammock in the desert. Man, uh, so first night not hi- the desert, the jungle. Jungle. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. First night hiking in, a um, couple of the guys on the trip were just not 
quite as fit as they thought they were. And we didn't make the time we needed to, so we threw up a hasty camp right at dark. Oh, we hit that swamp. Yep. Yeah, we hit the swamp. Um, that slowed us down like two, three hours. Oh, at least. Yeah. yeah, it had been wetter than they expected, and what should have been a wet spot was a, a, a waist-deep swamp. Yep. Uh, so we threw up a hasty camp, and the best I can think, the only thing I can think is I didn't take my belt off when I got in my hammock. It's, okay. it, I, mean, I want to blame it on uh, Eno. <laughs> That's um, right, it was an Eno. But I've used them for years and never had a problem. But at some time, well into the dark, I was rolling over in the hammock, and it sounded like uh, somebody opening a zipper, and I was laying on the floor, on the ground. Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, at least it's not raining. And then, of course, it started <laughs> pouring rain. So I had an inflatable pillow, and I was balancing on the inflatable pillow to keep me up out of the rain, sleeping, sitting up. And the next morning, the guy sleeping next to me said he just heard a thud and heard me say, well, I'm screwed. <laughs> oh, um, man. And fortunately, Gorin, the, uh, the local contact and fixer, happened. He always carries two hammocks because he uses one as a chair around the fire. So fortunately, there was a, a hammock for him to loan me. But I am probably 70 pounds heavier than Gorin. Mm-hmm. Um, and he warned me it was his old hammock. And if I slept in it in one direction, you could hear ping, ping, ping as the threads started to let go. But if, as long as I kept my feet on that end, it was light enough that I, I made it all 10 days in it. Oh, man. Uh, and at the end of 10 days, Gorin said, I'm amazed. I really didn't think that hammock was going to make it more than a day or two. Because you had to use that for – because the way it works is there's like a day or two where you, you go to a Colombian resort, which is Gorin's. Yeah. And you get kind of conditioned. They do some training, you get conditioned. Some you acclimatization. Get acclim- yeah, exactly, that word. And and then we go out into the jungle, and whatever you pack in, that's what you got. Yeah. Yeah. So you were stuck with that hammock, hammock the rest of the time, right? Um, which was way better than stuck with no hammock. You don't want to sleep on the jungle floor. No. No, not at all. Uh, in a pinch, I would have had to make a jungle bed, which is just not nearly as comfortable as a hammock. Right. <clears throat> yep. So, yeah, so we met there, and... And you were field testing... I was field testing the MSK-1 at that point. It had... Yeah, that was October. So it had been out there. We did the Kickstarter, and then uh, we got it into the hands of of Toomey and Benny, I think it was, Mm -hmm. who were our guides that came up from Brazil, from the uh, Matisse. Yeah, Benny was back on the last trip, too. Oh, was he? Yeah. Oh, man, they're great guys. Um yeah, and then so you and I had a unique opportunity to, I'm not even sure why, I think Joe said, you could stay a couple extra days, and so Goran accommodated us, and we stayed, what, an extra three days? Uh, I had talked to Goran. Goran's also a knife maker. Yes, that's so, right. So I had arranged with him to stay a couple of extra days and work in his shop and just do a little knowledge, uh, knowledge yep. exchange. Um, I got a crash course in tracking. Um, I, I took a, it took me about eight hours um, through various parts of the, the Colombian jungle, but I tracked Goran's wife in her car onto the interstate. Uh, now, some people will tell this story incorrectly, and they sit, will say that I got lost, and it was pure blind luck that I stepped out on the highway in front of Goran's wife returning from town. <laughs> um, 
and I don't I don't go too far into well that's not true actually. I am laughing I am laughing oh because it's funny so so like the other end of the the story so there's I think there's seven videos from that series that you can get on the Ultimate Survival Tips YouTube series so I'm actually I don't know if you knew this. I was actually doing a video of my gear. So there's one video that it was my kit that I took into the into the you know jungle. Yeah. And so I'm I'm videoing this and I've got multiple cameras going and some of Goran's uh staff they're come out, Have you seen Dan? Where's Dan? I'm like, Oh, I saw Dan like three hours ago. He headed that way. And so like they're tracking you and everybody's concerned, like Dan's wandering out into the jungle and you ha- but you weren't. You were tracking Goran's wife. Yeah. yeah. And, and fortunately, I, I was very well prepared. Um, I had half a pack of cigarettes, <laughs> a little bit of mumbay, uh, this knife, which is about the size of a paring knife. Okay. We uh, do have knives on the table that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Yep. Uh, and that was it. Okay. Uh, but it's, I thought you had flip-flops and beer, oh, too. I d- no, I had sandals. <laughs> nope, man. It, the one day I don't bring beer with me. Um, <laughs> But we had talked about um, why you get lost in the jungle, and they had had a concept that there was two reasons. One was the Dewinde, which is a trickster spirit, kind of like coyote in the, some of the Western okay. indigenous tribes' um, beliefs. Um, and if, he, if you come across him, he will confuse you so that you get lost. And what you do is there's a certain type of palm and you cut a section of this palm, and there's a way to carve that so that it breaks out into four interlocking rings. And you set that down in your tra- on your trail and walk away, and the trickster spirit who is following you to keep you confused finds it, and then he's confused how you have these four interlocking rings. He gets distracted, and you get away. Okay. The, another perspective on that is you realize you're lost. You stop. You perform... A simple task, you succeed at that task, and then you lift your head up, having had a moment to calm down, had a, having done something to give you some confidence to think. So I started looking around, and I couldn't find one of those palms near the trail. And I had made enough mistakes at this point, I wasn't leaving the trail. Which leads us to the second reason you get lost in the jungle. And there are little they're jungle spirits, they're kind of like gnomes. And if you offend them, they will cause you to get lost. And I was probably five or six hours into my, uh, my tracking expedition. <laughs> you were gone for a long time, dude. Um, and I, I, you know, I've got half a pack of cigarettes. There are worse things. So I cut up a couple of cigarettes, made an offering. And just as I did, like a bolt of lightning all of a sudden, the veil was removed from my eyes, and I remembered that not only do I have a compass on my watch, but I was helping you set up for your first shots that morning and was shooting an azimuth off of that compass onto the highway, which was my bailout point. Um, so I shoot an azimuth, and I start walking, and I'm like, well, actually, I look at the azimuth. I'm like, that's 180 degrees off. There's something wrong with my compass. And I take about three steps and go, which one's more likely? The compass is wrong or the lost dehydrated gringo is wrong. <laughs> so I shot the azimuth again and realized that I had been traveling all day, 180 degrees, and 
from where I thought I was. Oh, you were in South America. It was all different. Um, well, right? no, my, no, just my dead reckoning was... Oh, you were just off. You yeah. Just, For whatever reason, it... it Dehydration, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I had completely blanked on the fact that I had a compass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So what's the lesson learned here? Well, there's several. (laughs) So, as you know, I had just spent 14 days walking barefoot in the Amazon jungle with no kidding, bone through their nose, uh, Indian guides teaching me. So when I left my hut that day, my possibles bag with a canteen and my machete were hanging on the back of the chair. And it was a 30 or 45 minute walk to Goran's shop. And I was not going to show up looking like the scared gringo that needed his, his possibles bag and his machete. Cause, so ego and overconfidence, the, uh, the greatest sins right ego, there. Yeah. And then, I mean, I, I teach outdoor ed. Um, at one point, I consciously thought, you know... If I were lost, this is the moment I should just sit down and wait. Right. Good thing I'm not lost because I've been running around in the jungle barefoot with no kidding Indians. And I'm an experienced woodsman. And I, I'm not really lost. I'm a little mm-hmm. turned around, but I'm just a few steps away. Uh, which, again, arrogance and overconfidence. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it can happen to anybody. It can. Absolutely. Um, it happens to all of us. Yep. A a, uh, a very knowledgeable uh, woodsman in the States, uh, I was telling it, and I'm clearly a little embarrassed, and he said, there's two types of people that go to the woods, those that have gotten lost and those that lie about it. Yep. Um, hopefully, you're smart enough to realize that you are lost and and know what to do. Yep. But, yeah, I, I was arrogant and overconfident is really what it comes down to. Yeah. Uh, and fortunately, I had just enough skill that even though I continued to be arrogant and overconfident, I was able to get myself out. And I, I, I found Goran's wife just before dark. Um, and the, as soon it was as I getting dark, yeah, we thought you were out there for the night. And and the decision had been made that once it was full dark, they were going to call the national police and start a, a search. And uh, poor Joe, he's traveling back to the States with broken communications, getting updates that one of his clients is lost in the jungle. Like, that, that is not what an outfitter wants to hear. And as soon as I got phone service, the first thing I did was call Joe and ask if he had told my wife. And because Joe is such an amazing friend, he said, no, I wasn't going to call and tell her until we called the national police and started the search party. So fortunately, I did not get home to a lecture about me being stupid and arrogant and getting lost <laughs> in the jungle. <laughs> oh, man, man. So, like, I think it was the next day or the day after that, you and I had an opportunity. We went uh, we went to a resort uh, in... Oh, in yeah, unnamed, the, uh, the fishing resort. The fishing resort, yeah. Oh, I had completely with, forgotten about that. With the monster fish. Yes. That was really cool. That was. That was. Cool. Yep. Um, and that's where we, we kind of, I mean, we had kind of hit it off, yeah. you know, during the whole trip, but that's where we, you and I spent a lot of time together. Yeah. Well, and we were both doing, we were both doing our own thing. Yep. Um, I was writing some articles. I was doing some stuff with, uh, with E2E still, and you had a knife to field test. I had some blades. I was field yep. testing. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So that trip was fun, but we were both legitimately working. Yeah. And it was, yep. it was at the resort that we could actually hang out. Yep. And we only got pulled over once when we were going to the uh, airport on the way back, which is all on film, actually. Yeah, yeah. which is one Episode of the reasons six. they were so polite, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, it turns out they were looking for people uh, smuggling uh, animals and forbidden. Oh, is that what they were looking for? Okay. Yeah, they were looking for either uh, animals or um, uh, snake skins and teeth and stuff from oh, okay. exotic animals. Right. Um, yeah. And there weren't weren't exactly a lot of uh, Americans in town that day. No, um, <laughs> their English was better than my Spanish, which meant between the two of us, we probably had three words. Right. Yeah. Um, they were very polite, though. It's they all, were. It's all on video. <laughs> yeah, and they were. It was. Uh, they were the state police, which is closer to what we would think of as federal police. Yeah. Um, yep. But no, they they definitely knew they were being recorded. They were well armed. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Well, cool. That's really that's really cool. So let's talk about let's talk a little bit about the uh, podcast. So uh, well, actually, we talked about the podcast, didn't we? Yeah. Um, we did, but we uh, before the podcast, you'd ask about Magna Cut, and uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I started yeah. to geek out. Yep. Um, one of my niches. Has so Magna Cut is one of these knives, right? It's one of the steels. It's okay, the steel so, that this so is. So we've made got out three of. knives on the table. You want to just talk about the knives a little bit, and then you can talk about Magna Cut. Sure. Um, yeah. So the fish and fowl, which you're not the first person to say it's got very elven lines. Yeah, yeah. I've, so go ahead and describe it for our listeners. I really like um, kind of that wave form, the counter curve form yeah. of, of knives. You see it a lot in uh, like the French Laol knives. Uh, there's a function and a beauty to that shape that I like that also speaks to a lot of what people think of as traditional elven. It's it's wispy. It's light. It's it's um, it's more stiletto. Mm-hmm. Uh, this particular blade, we call it the fish and fowl. It's a step up in size from a bird and trout. Okay. Uh, where I grew up, it was bass fishing and dove hunting, not trout fishing and quail. So it's a little bigger blade. It's, it's one sixteenth S 35 VN with a full height flat grind. So it's got good flex to it. And it is, it's intended for breaking down game birds and flaying freshwater fish. Yeah, yeah. Where you only need, it's a four and a half, five inch blade, and that's all you really need. I, yep. I grew up in Georgia. I live in South Carolina now in the, the Highlands. Yep. And everything we catch, that's, that's the fillet knife you need. Nice. Uh, nice. That it, would work really good. We've, we've stepped up our just personal production of uh, meat birds. Yep. So process, that looks like it would be really good at processing 
chicken. One of my chefs, um, I'm pretty sure the video's on the website. If it's not, I'll get it back up. But one of my chefs uses one of these and completely breaks down a chicken in 30 seconds. Nice. Uh, I've got to see that. He does it once fast, and then he breaks it down to the, the eight major cuts. Okay. Um, but it's one of the great things about working with chefs is I get to geek out with these guys and get a lot of one-on-one ed that there's just no other excuse for me to me to be able to. Yeah. And some of that blade work with those guys, it's great for me as a designer and a maker, um, but I also get to geek out a little bit. <laughs> Uh, this one also, if you uh, if you knock the finger guard off, it makes a really nice steak knife. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Um, so that handle is unique. It's like an orange translucent. It type is handle with uh, something in it. It's a proprietary material that I call Firefly. Okay. Uh, Thirty minutes of direct, or actually the new formula, fifteen minutes of direct sunlight will give you ten to twelve hours of glow. Really. Um, so I'll cast it in oh. this. In this case, orange. I cast it in a bright color. So that in daylight, the orange stands out. Okay. But as you can see, it's translucent, and that lets light come through and interact with all these little glow-in-the-dark particles. And since they're suspended this way, light interacts with every surface of each one of these particles. So you actually get more surface area, area interacting with the light and thereby glowing rather than just the surface. Okay. So it's, it's really efficient, and it's... Day and night visible. Nice. Um, I might have to talk to you about getting one of those. That's a beautiful knife. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. What else do we have here? Uh, and then this is, this is, if it has a sheath, it's called a cub. Okay. If it doesn't have a sheath, it's my pairing knife. Okay. When I was going to make a utility knife, I've based it on the pairing knife in the kitchen because that knife does everything from cutting string and opening mail to breaking down birds I learned very quickly that every chef has at least two knives in their role. They have a chef's knife of some kind and a paring knife. Yep. And with those two knives, they can do anything in the kitchen. Um, so, so we're looking at it like, a, I'm going to say, a six, and six, six and a half inch from uh, tip to butt? Uh, uh, seven and seven a quarter inch? full length, okay. um, three and a half inch blade. It's almost like a puka type. Yeah. styling in the handle simple. it is it's very simple it's got just a little end it's got a little notch here to help you index so you know you're close to the edge um just a very simple it's tapered uh back to front mm-hmm. um a lot of chef's pinch grip so tapering it forward makes that uh, okay, that grip yeah, yeah. easier yeah, yeah. Uh, and then basically just knock all the corners off yep um simple drop point design um this is just slightly over one sixteenth of an inch. Okay. Um, I like. What is the steel on that knife? This, this is the Magna Cut. Oh, that's the Magna Cut. Okay, tell me about this Magna Cut. So Magna Cut was invented by Dr. Laron Thomas. Right. Okay. Uh, he uh, wrote Knife Engineering, which is an absolutely phenomenal book. Which is in my Amazon cart now. Because we were talking about it before the podcast. If you are a maker, whatever the book cost, the back one third of it is worth it. Because it is all of Laren's heat treat data. And he's got a CARTA testing machine. It's a cut testing machine. And he's, he's got a PhD in metallurgy. He, under s- laboratory conditions, sampled steels, the exact same steel, the exact same grind, the exact same shape, through the CARTA machine, 
to test edge retention and sharpness. And not just different steels, but different steels with different heat treats. And then has built a phenomenal library of heat treat data. Hmm. Uh, and then the first two-thirds of the book is geometry, which very few knife books touch on. And that's a crime. Um, and then uh, metallurgy, a uh, little bit of historical data, a uh, little bit of material science, and like I said, some geometry. But it's my favorite knife book out there. Okay, so why the steel then? So he has been on, his father was... And what's uh, the name of it again? Magna Cut. Magna Cut. I've never heard of this. So. It's a CPM Magna Cut. It is from Crucible Steel. Um, so, it's a, so it's a powdered... It's a powdered, powdered steel. Powdered steel, and that, the, the whole thing with crucible steels and the powdered nature of it what's the benefit of that so it's several fold it used to be making steel was like making stoop they would put all the materials in this crucible and they would heat it up and the convection would stir up the ingredients and then they'd pour it off and cool it and that was your steel but you would get serious inconsistencies the steel at the top was not quite the same as the steel in the middle which wasn't the same as the steel at the bottom so originally the intent was they wanted a way to get very consistent steel. So they atomized the components of the steel. They make them into technically tiny little spheres, but powder. And they'd mix the powder together and then used pressure to generate heat to fuse the steel together. Oh, that's how they do it. Okay. And it gave you, it got them what they expected, which was very consistent steel. Every pore front to back was very consistent. What they didn't realize is it also gives you a finer grain structure. And grain structure in steel, the best way to think of it is if you take a pile of gravel and you push, your, push it together with your hands and make a, a little uh, edge, when you look at that, because gravel is, is kind of big and clunky, it's got little sawtooths in it. Mm -hmm. If you take a pile of sand and push it together so it comes up into an edge, that edge is going to be finer, Much finer yeah. because the, the particles are sm finer. Same thing with steel. When they started getting this finer uh, grain in the steel, you were getting finer edges. Oh, okay. Yep. Plus, those little small parts lock together together. They have more, more surface interacting with each other. So the particles don't tear out as easily, so you get better edge retention. Okay. So they learned, like, D2, you can make D2 the traditional way, or you can make CPM, which just means uh, powder metal, D2, and the powder D2 will outperform the traditional D2. Um, a great example is uh, 154CM yes. versus CPM 154. Yes. The CPM is the powder steel, and it significantly outperforms um, the traditional style. So because Devin is a, uh, a PhD metallurgist in a lab, I'm pretty sure in the automotive industry, he had access to all their modeling software, uh, their test equipment. His father was the first person to make what people consider um, Damascus. It's pattern welded steel, but he's the first person to do it with stainless steel. So Laren not only is a PhD in metallurgy, but he comes from a family of, of master smiths. And he, he got on a mission to make the best possible cutlery steel he could. Hmm. And magna cut is that that process. Um, 
I don't have my notes in front of me. I believe you can cryo quench it up to 65. Uh, I quench, quench mine to 62. But I can take a 1 16th inch blade, uh, bring it at 62 Rockwell, and it will still flex like a chef's knife or like a um, um, fillet knife. Uh, the first batch I did was um, these little cubs, and I had one of my customers do a cardboard cut test, and he cut 126 feet of cardboard before it lost a razor's edge. Hmm. Um, it has absolutely phenomenal edge retention, like M4 level edge retention, but it is still fully stainless steel. Hmm. So it is corrosion resistant, uh, roughly equal to S35VN. Its working hardness is 62 plus Rockwell um, with just off the chart edge retention. It is also a bear to work with. Um, Kyle Daly, my co-host, did a great video of, um, he had a, a professional sharpener in the shop and they were going through the steps and he had the guy hand sand some CPM 154. And the guy said, you know, this is hard. Kyle said, yeah, and then he had him uh, hand sand magna cut, and the guy said, nothing is happening. Hmm. Um, this knife, it's a 1 16th inch knife. The blade is a little over three quarters of an inch high. Because the blade is so thin, I've got to fully heat treat it before I do stock removal. I, w I set the bevels on this knife with a 36 grit ceramic belt. That is usually what people use for profiling. That's, that's the blade right. that you, that's the belt you use for rapidly destroying steel. Um, to do five of these knives, I burned out two 36 grit Norton belts. Um, that five batch of knives, uh, it was two 36 grit belts. I got tired after about six 80 grit belts of wasting 80 grits. Had to go down and blow through four 60-grit belts and then come back up to 80. Um, it, it, it performs extraordinarily well, but the m manufacturing cost in both time and materials easily doubles the price. To do a MagnaCut blade cost me a, at least twice as much time and materials. Okay. Wow. But, but the performance is phenomenal. Uh, it also has a little bit of a warping issue. It's a brand-new steel. Once it's heat treated, it's fine. But typically in the cryo crunching process, um, it's got some funky interactions with stress, hmm. which adds a level of skill. Um, it is not a steel that I recommend new knife makers try. <laughs> Stay, with, um, <laughs> Stay with 1095. Yeah, it is right. very much a, a art and science steel. Yep, okay. But it is, if you have the time and the technique the performance is just off the charts interesting um and i have loved working with it but it has been a love-hate relationship <laughs> <laughs> so we got one more on the table real quick yeah it looks, uh, looks kind of like a, a a snappy little dagger almost. uh yeah uh very very much dirk um i call it the vespa or the wasp okay um it is somewhere between one could use it as a boot knife if they wanted to, but right, it is right. also yep. a usable spear tip um, outdoors knife. Uh, this one, I was in uh, Croatia and Serbia for a couple of weeks, 
and I wanted something that was a, a usable knife that should I need to, uh, to discourage undesired behavior, it would work for that purpose mm -hmm. as well. Um, and this one's S35VN, and it has got the, the ivory paper micarta liners or handles. Oh, nice. And it is a, uh, it's a, a four-inch uh, spear point with a, a partial false edge. Uh, again, 1 16th S35VN. Um, S35VN is just one of my, mm -hmm. one of my favorite steels. Okay. Uh, I like the performance. I like the balance of, of toughness, edge retention. And I've used it enough that I've got it really dialed in. Nice. Um, and so you probably do a lot with S35VN. I do, yeah. especially on the kitchen side. Uh, I use a lot of AEBL on the kitchen side as well. Okay. Um, but it's a, it's a high-performance steel, and I, I've got it dialed in so it does exactly what I want. Nice. Um, Magna Cut, there's some other newer steels that I'm still working with, uh, but I do a lot in the S35. So you really experiment a lot with steels. Uh, my niche for a long time, so I was an engineering student when I dropped out of school, and I came to knife making completely outside of the industry. I had been an avid outdoorsman. I had been in the military. Uh, I had worked with a lot of edge tools, but I was not a knife guy. Um, I, I carried a couple of Gerbers, a couple of Bucks. I really didn't see the purpose of investing in high-end knives because this knife could do everything I needed it to do. And I approached knife making as a engineering problem. Mm -hmm. um, a knife is a double incline plane. The Greeks did extensive research on how those work. Um, and then I geek out over some of the material sciences. So my niche was really trying knife shapes. There's nothing you can do in a knife shape. Since that first flake of stone was used millions of years ago, everything's been done. You might get a new combination of features, but there's nothing to do. Mm -hmm. Material sciences is where we can start pushing the limits. Uh, okay. That's where I can take a traditional... It's like, it's like the frontier. You're getting a new frontier every new development in steel. Okay. I, I can take a, I, get it. I, I can take a pattern that's 300 years old. That shape has been absolutely proven. Mm-hmm. I can now apply modern materials to it and cut the weight by a third. I can cut the, the thickness of the blade by a third, which greatly increases the efficiency of that double inclined plane. Right, right. We can take proven patterns and apply modern materials and shred the weight, run the, the edge retention and the keenness of the edge through the roof. And you start looking at some of these mythical blades. You know, you, you read about King Arthur cutting the equivalent of 1080 steel in half we're getting some steels that can do that now wow. like the, so that, so like we are really are talking about elven technology and alien technology maybe right we are <laughs> i mean the the advances in material sciences in the last 20 years have been equivalent to uh the invention of uh the computer chip um the internet yep. i mean there has been an absolute leap forward. Nice. Uh, again, 60 Rockwell, that used to be a razor blade. That used to be if you dropped it, it broke. Now we're making fillet knives. Right, right. And the, the harder really the knife point. is, the finer, the keener that edge can be. Mm -hmm. So we're now getting knives that are as sharp as straight razors, that are as flexible as a, as a, a fillet knife, 
and that weigh, um, I think this knife weighs ounces. four ounces. Yeah, it's so light, yeah. Um, and that that's that's where I like to geek out. I dude, love you're pushing. totally geeking out. I you're, am. you're like your <laughs> eyes are lighting up, and like there's flames flying all over the room. Man, so so like, if people want to geek out with you, tell tell us a little bit more about the podcast, and tell pe- tell people how they can find you. Uh, the Knife Perspective podcast. Knife Perspective. As okay. far as I know, we are on every streaming service. Uh, certainly, all the majors: uh, iTunes, Twitch, etc. Or you can go to our website, theknifeperspective.com. Uh, we have our, uh, we have, yeah, all of our, all of our episodes are available there. We've got an archive. And it's for anybody, any mm-hmm. knife enthusiast that wants to peek behind the curtain. They want to know why things are done the way they are, why things are expensive. Um, they want to go through the process that I did to learn why. Yeah, your your thirty dollar buck knife will work, but once your skills levels come up, let me show you what you can do. You know, yes, your Corolla got you to work. Take some driving courses, and then let me show you what a Ferrari can do. Right. Um, Interesting. Yeah. But the the podcast is really it's some aspect of knife making. Yeah. We have metallurgists come on and talk about steel. We have professional designers like Ethan and Joe come on and talk about. Uh, design principles. Uh, we had a lawyer come on and talk about how to protect inter- uh, intellectual property and what was and was not protectable. Um, we have dealers come on and talk about pricing, um, which was great for the makers because they'll price their knife so that there's there's some profit for them, not realizing that the dealer's got to make profit. Right. Um, and suddenly they've set an MSRP where if they sell it to the dealer – at a price he makes money, they don't. And if they try to sell it to the dealer at a price he's not going to make yep. any money, he's not buying it. Interesting. Um, yep. so, um, well, dude, I just found out about the podcast. I mean, we, we connected yesterday. Saw yep. you in the media room up here. And uh, I'm really excited because I'm, I'm, kind of a, I'm kind of like a casual knife geek. I mean, I'm all into knives. But like you and Joe and some of the other guys, you blow my mind that I'm actually – now that I'm just starting to get into some of my own knife making, I'm going to tune in. I'm looking forward to it. Please do. And uh, part of our deal is if anyone has a question about knife making, ask us. If we don't know the answer, we'll find an expert. We'll give you the answer, and then we're going to bring the expert on the show, and we're going to interview them. Um, really, much like um, I learned from the Georgia Guild, Rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. The more yeah. information we can get out to people, yep. the better it is for the industry as a whole. Yep. That's that's really interesting, and that's I think that's a really good maybe lesson learned. Like when people pour into your life, just give it back. Yeah. Don't don't just take it all for your own glory or whatever. Um, yeah, pay it forward. Yeah. Much they paid it forward, man. In my life too, different ways, different people, but the Georgia Guild, and then. The folks that mentored you through it really paid it forward, didn't they? Uh, we have. Um, Jason Knight was kind enough to help me start the South Carolina uh, Custom Knife Makers Guild. Nice. Which is sister guild to the Georgia Guild. Okay. And it's it's how I'm paying it forward. Um, now that I realize what a little pain in the ass I was uh, as a young maker, um, we're, we're now creating environments <laughs> so, that, <laughs> so that I can uh, patiently... 
pay my dues and and hopefully help uh, the next couple of generations. Yeah, nice, nice. I mean, you're doing stuff that there's probably not many people that are really doing it with the passion that you are right now. I was incredibly fortunate that several passions came together and Mm -hmm. met with an opportunity. Um, Unfortunately, there are a lot of people that know their passions and they don't have the opportunity. Um, For a long time, I took jobs that I had to have. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to be at a moment in my life where I could take the job I wanted. Mm -hmm. And it has given me the opportunity to, to bring these passions together. Yeah, so for the guy or the gal that's out there and they've they've kind of been looking for it, they kind of have a sense of their passion, maybe leave them with a word of practical application on, on you know, just some advice from a, an older gentleman. First and foremost <laughs> is, is cliche, but it's try it. Um, oh, yeah. Right, right. You, you're not going to know if you like it or not like it unless you try it. Try it. You don't like it. You've gained experience. You haven't lost anything. Try something else. Don't be afraid to try something new. And if you find something you like, commit what you can. Um, early on, I had, again, I was very fortunate. I could do three days a week. I'm working with some makers that only have hours. But whatever they have, they commit to it. And a couple of them have admitted that they're better people. Mm-hmm. That having that outlet, having that place for your passion to go, it, it's good for your soul, and frequently people find that if they do something they're passionate about, they wind up being good at it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's just something about making things with your hands, and knives are all about that, too. There is sometimes literally a little piece of me in every knife I make. <laughs> literally. <laughs> well, Dan, thank you. Thank you so much. We'll have you back again sometime, and, and uh, we'll, talk, we'll talk knives and, and more stuff, and I really... It was great to see you, man. It's great I, to see you, brother. I appreciate it. It it I feel a little bad by uh, how long it has been, but I love the fact that talking it was like it was yesterday. Yeah, yeah, man. And you got to come down to Greenville. Uh, I've got a, a lovely little piece of uh, Riverland where we can run and play and nice. pretend to be in the nice. jungle and uh, and send me send me uh, the stuff about the gathering that's coming up too. You had mentioned earlier. I will and. Uh, yeah, man, just one more time real quick. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, Dogwood Custom Knives, www.dogwoodcustomknives, or dan at dogwoodcustomknives, or theknifeperspective.com, uh, or on any of your streaming services. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, I appreciate you. Thanks for, thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. All right, my friends, before we head out of here, don't forget to check out the new Pack One Knife over at our mothership, ultimatesurvivaltips.com. While you're there, you can grab the show notes for this podcast, grab a ton of free training content, jump into our survival masterclass, and subscribe to my free weekly survival EMAG newsletter for survival and preparedness tips, new gear announcements, gear reviews, and subscriber-only giveaways and discounts. All right, I think that's about it. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time on the Survival Show podcast. Until then, keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp.